Welcome to City on a Hill's podcast. This week's podcast can be downloaded on iTunes or our media library at chccny.com. Well, good morning. I have an announcement before we get into our second part of our soul series, Soul Custody. We finally have arrangements that are in place and solidified for, I had mentioned this a few weeks ago, for two guests. They're going to be flying in on November 2nd, Sunday, November 2nd. They'll be here the day before. They're going to be sharing with us, you do not want to miss Sunday, November 2nd. We are flying people in from Minnesota to share their story. Mary Johnson and uh, this young, he's not a young man, he's an adult, uh, O'Shea Israel. They will be here. I highly recommend you invite people, friends. It's, it's a story of forgiveness unlike any other. So if you have any friends or relatives, this is the kind of meeting that you'll want to bring them to. I was blown away, moved beyond belief when I heard their story and said, you know what, instead of showing you their story, let's bring them in and let, you, let them tell you their story. So I hope that's something you're going to take seriously, and I'll keep reminding you as the weeks go on, we're about a month away. Well, as I said uh, a few moments ago, we are in the second part of a series we started two weeks ago called Soul Custody. The idea is loosely based on John Ortberg's latest book, Soul Keeping, and a book that many of us had read over the summer and just captivated by it, had so many wonderful things and truths to say that we thought we would spend a series on it. But before we get into it, I'd like to just open in prayer. Lord, as we heard that last song, like a mighty storm stir within our souls, Father, I ask that you would stir our souls this morning. You would get down to the deepest core of who we are, that you would open our eyes and let us see that we are more than our bodies, we are more than our minds, Lord, we are souls. Help us to see that every single person that we come in contact with has a soul and has meaning and is loved by you. Yes, everybody. Father, do something in this place today. Lord, let us really see the place. Lord, we're talking about satisfaction, soul satisfaction. Help us to see how our souls can ultimately and really be satisfied in you. We are restless we are searching and longing and striving for so many things to satisfy when you alone are what we need. Show us that, Lord. Remind us of that truth that is found in your word. In the name of the powerful Spirit of God, amen. Well, I would like to start with a, I'm going to start with a passage here. This is found in the end of the Bible, right before the book of Revelation, John has written three letters. This is the third letter. There are only 14 verses in the third book of John there at the end. And this is what he says. And I'm only going to read the second part here. I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. Okay? And here is what I would like to do. We have four sections. This is beautiful. Now, this section right here and this section right here, I would like you to ask the person next to you, how is your body this morning? How is your body? Don't do it. No, no, no. Don't do it yet. The two sections over here, I would like you to talk to the person next to you and ask the other person, how is your soul this morning? Go ahead. Body, soul. Mm-mm. 
Okay. Now, it, it, it worked out the way I thought it would work out. The two sides over here could have kept talking for a while. Their conversations went longer. I saw some of your faces over here, and you're like, what do I, I don't know. How is my soul? How do I really kind of define that? How many of you over here, you're with me, right? Would you agree with that? Yes. Eugene Peterson, the author of the Message Bible, this is what he wrote. He said, I had a pastor when I was a teenager, an adolescent, who always greeted me with, how are things with your soul today, Eugene? The question left me stuttering and tongue-tied. I hardly knew I had a soul. Mostly, I had hormones. I love the guy. I mean, so real, right? So real. And you think about that. He said he dreaded questions that involved a series of cliches. And, you know, I think for many of us, we hear that, how is your soul? And what do we, our, our minds automatically go to, how is your prayer time? How is your devotional time? That's it, right? Isn't that usually what we say? My brother's, what, what are, oh, you're pointing at the baby. I thought you were pointing at me. I thought I had something on my leg, and you're like, listen, bro, I'm trying to take care of you. Well, think about it. You look at 2,000 years ago, in Jesus' day, you look at the Pharisees, they had a devotional time, but you look at their lives, Jesus was like, your life is an absolute disaster. Your soul is a mess. And for us, what does that mean? You know, people ask you, how are you feeling? But if somebody asks you, like we did over here, how is your soul? It may be hard to answer. And to, as a, a point of reference to remind you of what we said two weeks ago, if you look up there on the screen, this is the slide that we put up, and there are parts of our personhood. You see, you live in a world that is very good when it, it, in terms of talking about the self and our bodies. We are obsessed with our bodies, and our culture tells us how to take care of our bodies, but we are more than our bodies. And when you look up there on the screen, what do you have first? You have where it says spirit, also synonymous with spirit, would be heart or will. Your will, every single one of us, our intentions, our ability to say yes and our ability to say no. How about the next one, the next dimension, our minds. And think about all of the thoughts and our feelings, everything that is going on around us right now, the things that you're thinking about. How long will this sermon last? The next dimension, how about your body with all of its habits and all of its appetites? Yes, the many appetites. And then, though, comes the last one in yellow, the soul. What makes a healthy soul when there is an integration of mind, body, spirit, spirit, will, and our soul? That's what makes a healthy person. And the soul, as we said, as a reminder is the deepest part of who we are. I love what the psalmist says. The psalmist says in Psalm 42, Why are you downcast, O soul? Why so disturbed within me? The psalmist also, Bless the Lord, O my soul. That's why in the ancient world, not just in the Bible, they would often address the soul in the third person because they understood that was the deepest part of who we are. Don't you love when people talk in the third person? You know, I do. I, I, I do it once in a while. But that's really what's going on at the deepest core of who we are when we are distressed, when we're suffering and in pain. Look what Job says, Job seven eleven. Job says, therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. He is speaking from the depth of his being. 
And this is pretty wild in doing research for this. I had never looked at this before, but there are over 20 passages. The Bible is replete with passages that talk about not human souls, but God's soul. Why do you think we have a soul? Because God, in fact, has a soul. I will put my dwelling place among you, and my soul will not reject you. I will walk among you, among you and be your God, and you will be my people. Everything is God stands behind this promise. My soul will not reject you. How about when Jesus is baptized? I didn't put it up on the screens, but just listen. We're told a voice from heaven says what? This is my son whom I love with him. Some translations say my soul is well pleased. So this morning, what is today's date? October 6th, 4th, whatever date it is. How is your soul really doing today? How is it? That's the question for the series. That's the question that we don't ask enough of each other. You know, in the Old Testament, that word for soul, here it is, nefesh. Nefesh is used 755 times just in the Old Testament. That word is used. And that word connotes a longing, a striving, a straining after something. And when, when the, the word is translated, what we see it in English as, you'll see words such as throat and mouth and eating because that's something it's talking about who we are and the human, the, really the Hebrew way of conveying human experience is very concrete. And the Bible talks about the soul being hungry and thirsty. What did Jesus say? Come to me, all ye who are thirsty. Are you kidding me? Thirsty? This world that we live in? We're dying of thirst. We are a parched people. Our souls are withering away and dying because we're trying to find soul satisfaction. What is the Rolling Stones' famous song, 1965? Can't get no satisfaction, right? We wonder why as Christians we can't find any satisfaction because let's be honest, let's boil it down, let's distill it. We're still looking for satisfaction in the wrong places. And you go, I'm in church. That's your job as the preacher. You're supposed to tell me that, but I know that already. Yeah? Well, if you knew that already, how come your soul is still in the state it's in? Our souls are in need of refreshment. Our souls are in need of help. Our souls need to be restored. And that's why this series is so important. That's why we're here today. And in our day, yes, there is so much dissatisfaction. And here's the point of this message. Let me just tell you, here is the thesis. How do we, now let's get down to some nuts and bolts. How do we as Christians pursue a satisfied soul? Are you with me? I'm just going to give you a couple of, you know, things that I'm looking at. John Orberg's book, some of my own ideas. What are ways that we, our souls can actually be satisfied? So that is the thesis of the message. That's exactly where I'm taking it for the rest of our time. How do we pursue, pursue soul satisfaction? And here is number one. If you take notes, we are to acknowledge and confess our chronic dissatisfaction. We are to address that. We are, to, we are to acknowledge that we are chronically a dissatisfied people. Can we do a mass, like, uh, a, a mass a confession of our dissatisfaction? You with me on that? Isn't confession for the soul pretty good? All right, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to go, if you've ever, if you've ever been dissatisfied, whiny, cranky, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand as a way of confession. No, 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 no. 
You don't even hear the categories yet. You don't know what you're getting into, really? Let me run through some of the categories, students. Let me run through some of the categories so you know what you're getting yourself into. For example, if you find yourself dissatisfied at work, there's a theologian by the name of uh, Drew Carey. This is what he said. He said, you hate your job? There's a support group for that. It's called everybody. They meet at the bar. (laughs) That was really good. Anyway, by the way, let me just get into this. I have to do this. University of Chicago. They did a study. I read this in Forbes magazine. Why are you reading Forbes magazine? I don't know. I shouldn't be. I'm a teacher, right? Why would I read Forbes magazine? I was reading Forbes magazine, in case you're wondering. In there, they had a study that was fascinating, and it's, it, it applies to this. They had, what are the 10 happiest jobs in America and the 10 least happiest jobs, according to their research? You want to see this? You ready for this? I'm only going to show you the happiest people in the world. I don't want to get you upset and show you people that aren't happy, because God forbid that's your job, and you walk out of here and say, well, that's great, it's awesome. Here it is. I'm not giving you number one. Ready? Five, teachers. Ah, four, authors. Three, physical therapists. Two, firefighters. One, I forgot to put one in. No, I didn't. Anybody want to guess? What do you think one is? Come on, come on. What? Policeman. No. Doctor. No. Somebody else. Good guess on doctor. Somebody else. What? Clergy. Clergy. Number one answer, clergy. Yeah, give it up. Give it up. Yeah. Yeah. I was as surprised as you are. Pastor Linda just looked at Pastor Joe, kind of like a perplexed. You can't make it up. It's really true. How about having two on that list? I'm like, listen, I'm at one clergy N5. I am living the dream. Absolutely living the dream. But this is what they said in this study. This is pretty neat. I didn't put up the other list, but... These are jobs that obviously don't pay as well, right? When you looked at the opposite end of the spectrum, those were the jobs where people were making a lot more money. I lied to you. I use this stuff in sociology. I love getting into discussions about what truly makes people happy. Because you always hear, right? I hear it all the time from kids. Money's going to make me happy. I'm like, that's good, you 16 and 17-year-old ignorant child. You will find out as you get into this world that money may give you temporary happiness. Well, I just want to win the lottery. Is that you? You want to win the lottery? Great. Daniel Gilbert, stumbling onto happiness. You know what he says? Studies, right? People that win the lottery, six months after winning the lottery, they go back to their prior state of happiness. Only six months. So they're, li- they're loving life for those six months. And it doesn't mean it, can- it can't help your problems. The money, of course. I'm not, I'm not downplaying that. But there is more to finding happiness in this world than actually finding... Kids, listen to me. There is more that for, for happiness, finding happiness in this world than what the world's going to tell you. Yes, what job is going to give me the most money? No, absolutely not. That is why 8 out of 10 people in American society hate what they do. They hate their jobs. There's a problem. There's a problem in our culture. Look what it says in Ecclesiastes 2... Here it is. This is what we see. Nothing is better for a man that he should eat and drink and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor or his work. This also I saw was from the hand of God. Our work, a place that we really should find meaning, but because of sin, we are now dissatisfied. So you ready for the categories now? Class, are you ready for the categories? Here you go. If you've ever been dissatisfied because you're not married, 
If you've ever been dissatisfied because you are married, if you've ever been dissatisfied with your money, your body, your boss, your hairline, your waistline, your bottom line, your neighbors, your dog, your car, your relatives, if you've ever been dissatisfied with any aspect of your life or the person sitting next to you, raise your hands. This is the whiniest, crankiest church on Long Island right now. Look at you. Some of you are still holding your hands up. (laughs) Wow. We live in American society, a place where we have more resources than anybody that, that has ever graced this planet in terms of finding satisfaction. How come we are the most bored people that have ever lived? Remember I told you two weeks ago about the state of depression in our culture. How come we have so many more issues than the prior generations before us? I think the answer has to do with our souls and how they're withering away and dying and how it's sometimes it's like imperceptible and we can't really see it. We're not really cognizant of it, but it's happening right before us. And this is the great paradox of the soul. And I, I took this right out of John Orberg's book. He says, the soul is incapable of satisfying itself, but is also incapable of living without satisfaction. Let me say that again because it was profound. The soul is incapable of satisfying itself but is also incapable of living without satisfaction. You were made, friends, of City on a Hill Community Church. You were made for soul satisfaction, but you were made to find that satisfaction in God. You were made to find it in God, and the soul craves to be significant. Look at this. Look what the psalmist says in Psalm 63. He says, because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. Let me stop here for a moment. This, I had a situation this week at school where in my sociology class, and I, I, I've taught this class for many years, and every semester, and I think I've even shared it before in a sermon, the most moving time for me is when I do what is it's my music project. And I have kids come in, and they have to pick their favorite song out. And they have to, you know, pick out lyrics that are meaningful to them, and they answer questions based on that. I make them get up in front of the room, and I mile it first. I go deep. I give them a deep personal story, because so many times, as an educator, I'm like, they don't really get to see into my soul. You get to see into my soul first, and then I want to see, I want to see into your soul. So every semester, invariably, I get kids that come up and they'll talk about really cool, neat stories. But it was not like this week, where it was like I had to hold back tears sitting there because I was so blown away. I had kids get up, and 16, 17-year-old kids get up, one after the next. One kid got up and talked about how she was suicidal. Next kid got up, I tried to take my life six or seven times. My dad's an alcoholic. It went on and on. I had kids crying. I had a kid come up, I'm, you know what, I'm heavy, I'm fat. And and kids don't accept me. That's why this song by Beyonce, uh, Pretty Hurts. And it got to a line, and I was, I got to read you this. I wasn't going to share this, but I'll, I'll share it with you anyway. It was so powerful to me. Beyonce, of all people, I don't know. I'm looking at the lyrics that this kid put up on the screen. We try to fix something, but you can't fix what you can't see. It's the soul that needs surgery, the soul that needs surgery. And here's a kid, gets up in front of the room and talks about, I've never been accepted because I'm fat, and I'm finally getting to the place I don't really care what other people think. Are you kidding me? 
Another kid gets up. I'm telling you one after the next where I'm sitting there. Why am I telling you this? Because we live, as John Ortberg says in his book, on the planet of lost souls. And there are so many people and they're going around and they're searching and they're longing and they're yearning to find real happiness, soul satisfaction. And it took everything within me not to pop up in a public high school classroom and go, I know where you can find it. I see that you're hurting. I know who can help you. His name is Jesus. And I know, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, there are people in here, and you've been coming here for a long time, and you say, you know what, I have some of the same issues. Just because you're in a church today doesn't exclude you from that. We all, as human beings, we all have souls, and we're all dealing with soul dissatisfaction. Thank gosh God sent an answer 2,000 years ago in the form of one Jesus Christ to help us. But again, it's the soul that needs surgery. That line, it just kept playing in my head. Even after the class was over, I'm trying to eat lunch, right? It's the only time of the day I can eat lunch. Kids are crying, consoling each other in my room. I'm like, where am I right now? Literally, I'm not kidding you. To tell one girl, she tried to kill herself so many times. Mary, you have, God has a plan. That's when I pulled it out after that. I said, God has a plan for your life. You understand me? God has a plan for you. Everywhere we look, soul dissatisfaction. That's number one. How about number two? How about surrendering my need to always get what I think I want? You know, Jesus talks about this great paradox or or contradiction of the soul. And you've heard this shared before when he said 2,000 years ago, for whomever wants to save their soul will lose it, but whoever loses their soul for my sake and the gospel will save it. In other words, what is Jesus saying by this? The soul desires a life that is more about the the satisfaction of desire, more than that. And as I alluded to earlier, we're talking about happiness and satisfaction. You know, we'll never be happy if the ultimate goal of our lives is to be happy. Did Did you hear that? We'll never be happy if that's the ultimate goal of our lives. I just want to be happy. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's what the founding fathers put out there. That's what we're supposed to chase relentlessly. I'm here to tell you this morning, listen to me, especially you younger people, that the world will tell you that's what you're supposed to do. I would say happiness is the byproduct of looking at something bigger and something better. It's the byproduct of a different kind of life. Happiness and meaning is found when we put our souls in the care of one Jesus Christ. I know that. Yes, I know. Are we doing that with our lives? How do we really feel? How is the state of your soul this morning? Because that is the ant that will tell you. That's the litmus test. When you look in the mirror, that's exactly where you'll find that out. And you know what? Our souls crave what? They crave meaning, they crave significance, and there's a huge difference. And I I saw so many studies on this. There's a huge difference between the pursuit of meaning in life and the pursuit of happiness. And it turns out that happiness without meaning becomes very shallow and extremely self-centered. Happiness without meaning. We were made to find meaning in our lives. But what is most of our lives is what is it about? It's conditional happiness. It's good. What do I mean by that? I'll be happy when all of my desires are satisfied. I'll be happy if I can avoid the pain and everybody likes me. If I focus in on my circumstances, I'll be all right. People that don't have a job, what do they think? I'll be happy when what? When I get that job. And then I love it. You see people and they get a job. And then what happens after that? I'm going to be so happy when I retire 40 years from now. 
40 years from now is a long time. What are you going to do in the day-to-day, your day-to-day existence, living? Some of you know, right? I hope that's not you, those laughs, right? But that's a lot of people. You know, I'll be happy down the road when I get a chunk of money. If I just had more money, then I'll be happier. And what do we do? We're so preoccupied with self, we take that money and we spend it on ourselves. Let me get a new car, a nicer car. Let me get a bigger house. Let me buy more things. And study after study has shown the more money we spend on ourselves, it brings us less and less satisfaction. Oh, it's true. We have to look at me. Seal, when you were up here today talking about that, this is, I mean, there are so many avenues for us as Christians to go with our time and our money and our resources where we can find real soul satisfaction. But we are so preoccupied with self. First, myself, first, first, first and foremost, right here, myself. How selfish we can be. Or you know what? Uh, people that don't have kids. I, I thought this was really interesting. People that don't have kids, what do they think? I, I thought this. Maybe you didn't, I'll confess. I'd be so much happier if I just had kids. <laughs> Once I get kids in my house, I'm going to be so happy. And then, you know, what happens? Kids get in the house, and like yesterday, I'm, you know, you're trying to prepare for a sermon. I'm like, how many more years before the kids are going to move out? <laughs> Nolan's eight months, so maybe when he goes off to college, maybe at some point, then he'll really leave, right? Come on. And we think of those things all the time. We think of the chubby little arms. They're always going to reach out and grab us. And our kids are going to get straight A's. And they're going to star in all the plays in school. And then Jameson came along. And uh, I lo- no, I love Jameson. No, he's a great kid. But all the ideas I had about, I'm being honest, the ideas I had about parenthood kind of shattered early on. <laughs> Waking up in the middle of the night, delirious, right? Crying. I'll, and this, Megan still doesn't know this story. And I don't know where she is. I'll tell you, all right, little secret first time I had that little baby by myself five years ago, and she went out with her mom, and she's like, all right, honey, you're ready for this moment. I am? Okay, (laughs) I guess I'm ready. You believe in me. Great. My wife believes in me. Awesome. She left, and I was there to care for this little soul, and the little soul didn't stop crying for two and a half hours. (laughs) At one point, I put music on so, I put him in the bedroom and like in his crib, and I put music on so loud because I didn't know what to do. I walked outside for a little while. How many parents you've been there before, right? And you realize it's not as easy. You realize there are dirty diapers, right? Before I came here today, Megan's like, can you check it, s- smell him? I'm all dressed like this. Did he go to, the, does he need a diaper change? Really? Look at me, I'm going to preach. <laughs> it's true. How about this? I came across this. This was fascinating to me. If you look up, look at this, look at this, this partial phrase. Try this on Google. Don't pull your phones out now, okay? But you do it later. Pull your phone out later. Is my two-year-old, you put that partial phrase in Google, you know what the next word is that comes up? Guess. Is my two-year-old gifted? Is my two-year-old gifted? Have I passed my world-class genes on to this child? <laughs> Are you kidding me? Really? That's, I, I read that, I was, I was stunned by that, and then I said, why should I really be stunned by that? You know, and studies too prove this, that when you're a parent and you have young kids, that actually your, your level of happiness goes down. I'm not shocked by that, right? Then when they move out years later, your level, level of happiness goes up. But I can, one thing the studies forget here, your level of meaning goes up too when you're a parent, and I'm, we're laughing, and it, it, some of this stuff is really true, 
but your level of meaning goes up as a parent. And there are things I constantly have to remind myself that I'm pouring myself into this child, into this soul, these souls, and where I want them to go. Raise a child in the way they should go. When they're older, they won't depart from it, as hard as it is. And that has taken me out of my selfishness because I could just go sit in the woods. It was hard today to not just get up and go walk into the woods for three hours and not even come here and preach. Just hang out with the animals and hang out in the trees and just read forever. That's really, that's my, that's my, I, you want my perfect day? That's my perfect day. That's my perfect day. Yeah, I know, I need help. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> if, we, if we aim at meaning, you get happy thrown in. Aim at happy, you get neither happy nor meaning. Isn't that the truth about following or just living in this world. I think it really is true. How about this? One more, one more example. The Journal of Socioeconomics, they had a, a great little study here, and they looked at changes in people's monetary um, income. Their, their level actually brought them very little happiness. Probably not that surprised. A secular study, an increase in the level, though, conversely, an increase in the level of relational involvement in their lives, they said, gives a deepening of connection and relationship, which is worth more than $100,000 a year in life satisfaction. The, the, the breadth and width of your relationships, if you had to put a monetary value on that, is $100,000. So what you can do here, if you want after the meeting, maybe give somebody $80,000, a friend, a good friend, you'll still come out $20,000 ahead. Right? Think about it. It's really true, though. How are we doing with our relationships with other people in terms of feeding our souls? Look what the psalmist says, though, in here. Getting back to my original point, I kind of went off there. Let me, let me try to steer the uh, ship back. This is what the psalmist says in 131. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. What is the psalmist talking about here? you look at all of the troubling and unsatisfied desires that are affecting us, right? How many of you feel that on a daily basis, how we are bombarded with unsatisfied desire? And what is the psalmist saying? What does that mean? What's that connote? Being weaned off that you deliberately withhold something from the child. You wean that child off. That for us, we need to be aware of what we're looking at here in this world. Deliberately looking at this, ruminating on this. How are ways that I'm being sucked into this culture and it's actually causing my soul to shrivel up and die? We need to be more reflective as a people in spending time on that, in looking at our appetites and looking at our desires. How about number three? Here you go. Here's another one. The soul is more satisfied when it is less preoccupied. The soul is more satisfied when it is less preoccupied. Look what Isaiah says. Isaiah says, Come all you who are thirsty. That's us, the human race. That's every single one of us, how thirsty we are. Come all who are thirsty. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. That's grace. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? That is our world, friends. Listen to me. Eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Hear me that your soul may live. To be driven, to be, to be thirsty is to be driven by unsatisfied desires. Look what the psalmist says too here 
in, in the next one, I'm going to skip that. In Psalm 22, deliver my precious soul from the power of the dogs. Huh. This is the part of the sermon that I was waiting for the whole time. Do you want to know why? Because I get to make a Lord of the Rings reference. <laughs> all right, all right, class. You look at this verse. What two words should pop out at you since I gave you a little hint about a Lord of the Rings reference? This is wild. This is really cool. My precious, right? How many of you seen Lord of the Rings? Here he is. I had to put a picture of him. That's our good friend Gollum, right? The ring. Yes, yes, the ring. Jameson is going to get older. What I'm telling you right now, he is going to learn this. We're going to sit down. Son, you're going to read Lord of the Rings, whether you like it or not. And he's going to read it, and then I'm going to tell him this. This is absolutely phenomenal. The word Gollum actually comes from a Hebrew word that's used in the Bible. In Psalm 139, when it talks about an unformed body, it's actually talking about this Hebrew word Gollum. And Jewish folklore, they, they talk about this creature... They talk about this creature that has unsatisfied appetites and desires and is constantly striving and searching and goes mad when Tolkien put this character and named him Gollum. He is actually pointing back to scripture. So when the millions of people out in the world and they talk about Gollum, I just kind of laugh. I'm like, you have no idea what you're talking about. That is you and that is me. That is the human condition. Here is a a slave. He's a slave to his desire, a slave to his appetites. And the first time I saw this, I saw myself. Do you see yourself? A slave. Oh, he has the ring, right? When he has the ring, he's worried somebody's going to take it. My precious. Right? If he doesn't have the ring, how do I get it back? It consumes him. Look at the people in this world. Look how unhappy people are. The Philip Seymour Hoffmans, the Robin Williams of the world. Unsatisfied, but don't even look at them. Just look at yourself. Unsatisfied desire. Soul dissatisfaction. And everyone has a soul. Here's a, you know why I like him too? You know why I like Gollum? He's a creature that is incapable of loving. He's incapable of love. And We need to see and understand, I'm pumping gas this morning, and it just occurred to me, I'm pumping gas, and I got it wrong. I put the card in, and I don't know, I hit like, it wasn't a debit card, I hit like credit card, and next thing I know, I'm there for like five minutes. I have my notes out though too, so my mind's not really, you know when you're doing stuff, you're not really thinking, and the next thing I know, I've been at this gas station a thousand times, and the individual, he has zero personality. The guy that runs the gas station, I'm not telling you which one, right, you can come up to me afterwards, I know the guy, listen. This dude has zero personality, all right? I don't know where he's from. He's not from here. I, I don't think he was born in America. I'm not sure of that. But it's really interesting to me that I looked at this guy, and for the first time today, I'm like, that guy has a soul. And you may say, really? Like, you didn't know? No, 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 no. That man that I know nothing about, it guaranteed is not a Christian, that man has a soul and is loved by God. And that I need to look at every single person I come in contact with from that vein that they are somebody that is created in the image of God and God loves them. And don't look at me like I'm the only person that has ever looked at somebody that way, regardless of what their religion is. If they're Hindu, if they're Buddhist, if they're Muslim, whatever they are, they are created in the image of God. They are our brethren. And I saw it and I said, wow, I never really looked at the man this way. I don't know anything about him, but he is a soul that was created by God. How about this? One of the great, most influential, seminal books of the 20th century, probably none of you ever read it, W.E.B. Du Bois. 
you know that name. First black man to get his doctorate from Harvard University. He uh, started the NAACP. He wrote a book, The Soul of Black Folks. And I was thinking, I'm like, it's not the selves of black folks. It is the souls of black folks. And it was probably the greatest book in the 20th century written on racism and just humanity in general. We can, I guess in a sense, demean people sometimes without even saying anything. And we forget the depth and dignity of a soul. We need to remember that. How about when you see two people, though, that are so connected? Two people that are so connected. How about like Jonathan and David in the Bible? One of my favorite stories. How many of you know the story of Jonathan and David? What does it say? That Jonathan loved David's soul as his own. That he would do anything for David. Two souls that were kindred spirits. Two souls that were living together. Do you have a soulmate? Not the person if you're married, the person you live with. Is there somebody else that you really bear your soul to? I mean, really, somebody else that you walk around with and your soul is so deeply connected to that individual. Where is that in your life? Where is it? And then finally, here's the last one. The ultimate issue in the universe is not your satisfaction. This is John Piper. It's God's satisfaction. It is not your satisfaction. It is God's satisfaction. And look at here. Look at this passage you all know pretty well. Luke 12, 16 through 20. Then he spoke a parable, Jesus, to them saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully, and he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and therefore I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then Whose will those things be which you have provided? Parable you've seen and heard and how sobering this is. And in researching this, there's a lot of technical language in there. And when it says, shall be required of you, it's actually technical language from the financial arena. When it says that there, that part, shall be required of you, it's talking about a loan that's going to come due. And it's saying there, Jesus is saying, there's a loan that's ultimately going to come due that every single one of us has been given a soul, and there's ultimately going to come a day we're going to have to give account for that soul. In everything that we did, in word and deed, we're going to give account. And listen, that's why, listen, our souls belong to God. They're made for God. That's, but that's why we're so thirsty, because we're looking and we're searching everywhere. Sin makes us thirsty. And there is a doctrine, by the way. There is a doctrine called the doctrine of satisfaction. The doctrine of satisfaction. You know what the doctrine of satisfaction is? The doctrine of satisfaction is 2,000 years ago when Jesus was put on that cross. That is the doctrine of satisfaction. Isaiah puts it like this. I have a lot of passages today. I know. I'm going quick. After the suffering of his soul, talking about Jesus, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. God talking about Jesus, I'm sorry. By his knowledge, by my righteous servant, will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. And then look at this. Jesus, in the garden of Gethsemane, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them, to his disciples, stay here and keep watch. Do you notice he's not just saying his body, he is saying his soul was overwhelmed. To the core of his being, he is overwhelmed and taxed. We always know he's suffering in the garden from something called hematidrosis. He's dripping drops of blood, right? Sweating drops of blood, I'm sorry. But he's also being anguished to the very core of who he is. 
But the good news, let me leave you with the good news, friends. The good news is that ultimately, he's coming back. That this Jesus is coming back and he's going to right every single wrong. There's a a line that I love from an old, old song. Some of you may know it. This is my father's world. And there's a line in there where it says, Jesus who died shall be satisfied and heaven and earth will be one. And you please, as you, listen, do not forget, Jesus is coming back and one day all things will be made well. One day God will look back on his creation and he will ultimately be satisfied. He will be satisfied. And you may say, listen, look at the state of my soul. There is soul. I am dissatisfied. Join the club. Join the club. But as Pastor Linda comes up in a second, we're able to come to the table and we can bring that dissatisfaction to him and we can realize there is an empty abyss inside of every single one of us and when we're looking to all these other things, aren't you sick? Really, come on. Aren't you sick of looking to everything else in this world and trying to, how can this satisfy me? How can that satisfy me? I've been there. It gets old after a while. How come we're really not giving him a shot at this? He says he will satisfy. If you're tired, if you're weary, if you're thirsty, you're just worn out, this is the place for you right here. There's nowhere else in the world that will satisfy your soul like this. Yes, you may find temporary satisfaction. I'm talking eternal satisfaction. You are an eternal soul, as Dallas Willard says, in God's universe. An eternal soul. Your soul goes on forever. It doesn't. You will never stop existing. Death takes you from, on a conveyor belt from one realm of existence to another. That's what death is. You'll keep going. And while we're here, though, we can work in our souls. Isn't that wonderful? There's still time. So, Pastor Linda, why don't you come up and close us out here? You have some questions for us. tell you what he did when he had Jameson out for two and a half hours crying. He called me. (laughs) Pastor James, thank you for this series because I I guess for me personally, I don't think as a people we can talk about anything more meaningful in our lives. And I can tell you that for me, I'm I'm on a journey and have been for a number of years still very young young in it. But this message has been probably the biggest uh, passion of my life. Uh, I'll tell you why. There was a day Jesus was talking to a number of people, and there were a lot of religious people around. And Jesus said to them, Jesus said to them, um, you know, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you're not going to have any life in you. Crazy words. And they were so indignant because they were the the real religious people of the day. Jesus said, you know, you think because you know all the scriptures, maybe we'll just exchange that word scriptures right now and say, you think because you have all the rules and all the words, you think you have life inside of you. You think you have the peace that I give you. You know, when I was a young woman, right before I came to know Christ, it was one of the things that was so, during my dramatic and traumatic
Somebody call peace. The result of learning how to govern yourself. The result of learning how to govern yourself. Under God. Under God. Today, when I meet people, when I meet that person that I'm having a problem with, I'm going to decide before I get there that I'm going to trust God to love that person. It's putting your armor on in the morning, saying, God, Thanks for listening to City on a Hill's podcast. For more resources, visit us at chccny.com.